Well, let's turn to God's word now here in, in um, Mark chapter 10. We're back in Mark. We're back in Mark. We're going to kick off the new year with the gospel, the good news, and the bad news. All right, let's take a look here at the sermon. How, uh, and uh, it's reckoned well. Christ actually instructs us how to listen to his word. How does Christ tell us we should listen to his words? If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Even so, Father. Mark chapter 10, we're back in the narrative. We're back in the narrative. So I'm going to read it. It doesn't tell um, how much instruction we need, but there's a debate going on. Jesus has told them he is going to die. He's told them he's going to die. He's told them he's also going to rise from the dead. It's obvious they don't know what he's talking about, which you can imagine. Hey, Will, I'm going to die, and three days later I'm going to rise. They have no idea. You would have no. You would think I was just kind of nutty, right? But the idea that he's going to die is very clear. And with the death of anybody who's in charge of a kingdom, there is a succession struggle. Correct? Happens in companies. It happens in countries. It happens in with any transfer of power. And the disciples are very aware of the problem that there is a transfer of power problem if Jesus is not going to be there. They've made it so clear three times now that he's going to die. Three times he's repeated it. And so, in light of this, a mom of the mom of the, the sons of Zebedee, um, and, you know, look, these are Jewish people, and there's all sorts of Jewish mom issues. Trust me. Uh, I come from a Jewish family. They're, they're real. She comes to tell Jesus, I want my boys to be in control. And there's all this weird, it's weird. We're jostling for power. And... Um, <clears throat> In this, in this particular story, Christ has told them that they will definitely drink of the cup of which he will drink. And they've asked for power, and he said, you will have power. But it's not going to be what you think. He's answering them right now. And then there's a story of blindness. And if you think about it, the fact that they can't understand what he's doing, and the story of Bartimaeus' blindness, they dovetail. They, they, they anchor together. And they make sense. They're complementary. What is the real problem that you might encounter today with the God's word or anything I might say? What is the real problem? Spiritual blindness. I could talk and talk and talk and talk, and it could be just like Snoopy. I don't know. Am I dating myself if I talk about Snoopy? What, right. Whenever adults speak, what do, what, what do they say? Wah, 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 wah. Is that what you hear when a preacher's talking or a pastor's talking? That's obviously what Deepak hears. Okay, so let's look at Mark chapter 10, 35 to 52. Christ is very aware of this problem. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, it's like everybody's a ruler in the world, lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even, and he's talking about himself here, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, tell him to shut up. But he cried out all louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight. And followed him on the way. Just imagine right now that Christ has said, What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Let's pray. This is what we want, Father. Well, maybe there's a lot of things in this room people want. I don't know. What do you want? You've asked this question, to, I think it's a living question, what, what do you want us to do? What do you want us, or what do we want you, I'm sorry, to do? Son of David, have mercy on us. Son of David, Jesus, have mercy on us and open our ears to hear the good news. In Jesus' name. We're going to focus almost exclusively on verse um, 45. It's one of the most, <coughs> most important verses of the New Testament. And the reason it is so important is because of the Jesus-Paul problem. I'm going to give you a little bit of academic, uh, uh, academic issue right here. And uh, usually, you probably have heard people do this. People try to separate Jesus from Paul and the epistles. So you have the four Gospels of, uh, of, of Jesus... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then you have the Pauline epistles. And we know we can date the Pauline epistles reliably to, uh, you know, 80, 40 plus. Which means they were within seven to ten years of Christ's death and resurrection. Now, the reason that's important is this, these seem to be older than this. Because uh, they, we, 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 we don't see the Gospels, we don't reliably see copies of the Gospels until later. We really don't have dates on these. We really don't know when they were written. And contemporary modern scholarship tries to push the four Gospels as late into the first century as possible. 75 plus. AD 75 plus. And the reason they try to do that is because the four Gospels in detail describe the destruction of Jerusalem. So uh, a lot of, I'm talking about scholars who are, who are skeptics, who are attempting to say that this is not a supernatural doctrine. But the reason they try to separate from Paul is because Paul talks a lot about atonement. Atonement and the concept of a ransom. And this is the only time that Christ talks like this in the New Testament. 
where he talks and uses the word for ransom. And the idea is that this must have been inserted, although we have no copies where it's not present. The idea is, is that somebody put this in Jesus' mouth in order to connect Jesus to Paul. Because if you can separate Jesus and Paul and say that they have a different religion, this is what's been attempted to do by a lot of people. If you can say that Jesus and Paul had a different religion, then you can start breaking apart the integrity, the, the, the authenticity, the, the wholeness of the gospel. You can start saying that the idea that Christ died for sinners as a ransom, this concept that's in here, you can get rid of it. You can try to push it off. You can try to somehow separate yourself from it. Why would anybody want to separate themselves from the concept of ransom, of atonement, expiation? There's a whole word group here. Why would, why would anybody want to do that? And that's what we're going to talk about today. Why would anybody want to do that? And I'll tell you why. First of all, because it reduces the work of God primarily to the concept of transaction. You gotta get him. I mean, look, this is, this is the idea. This is the idea. This is what your this is what your this is what your salvation is. Here, here. You can't have that. Give that back. <laughs> it's a fifty. You can't have that. Here, I'll give you a single. That's all I can afford. Now, what's the? That's the idea here. That's how. Now, now let's take let's take the idea of God's eternal love. Adorning and loving melody. I mean, God and, and everything that people in modern in modern Christianity think about what is love, and let's say the way we understand that love and God's love for her is something bought. What what is that? You see why? Doesn't that isn't that a little irritating? Just a little bit. That the concept, the bare concept of transaction, is a part of the story of what it means to save somebody? Because that's what the word ransom describes. Transaction. And there has been a steady, you can go to many churches, here even here in the city, where they're getting away from, wanting to retreat from the concept of transaction. Why? Because it's viewed as crass. It's viewed as ugly. It's viewed as reductionistic. It's viewed as not PC. Oh, wait a second. It gets worse. <laughs> it gets worse. Because not only is this a, 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 a transactional word, you know what transaction is describing? Slave trading. <coughs> the word that's being used here is well attested in the Greek world. Yes, it is. It describes manumission. You know what manumission is? It's buying and selling people. Unfortunately, even in our generation, in our age, the slave trade is alive and well in Sudan, in Thailand, all over the world. Somebody was remarking to me yesterday that how shocked they were that the slave trade was active in Costa Rica. It was funny, I was talking to that person, and I said, why are you surprised about Costa Rica? And he said, well, they just seem literate and well-educated. I was like, do you think that that's somehow a buttress against slavery? Slave um, it's, it's the, uh, all right, do you see how we're, see how we're moving? You know, not only transactional seem bare or naked, 
Now it's about the buying and purchasing of people. And Christ is taking, and Mark is putting in Christ's mouth, a description of the rescue of Deepak as a slave trade. And the slave trade is a way to understand it. Wait a second. Wait a second. Whoa, whoa. Do you see why people want to backpedal out of this? And why churches are back, backing off? Wait, that's not PC. We can't use the language of slavery. That we've got to distance ourselves from these crass, ancient, primitive, ugly, pre-literate uh, ideas that don't really... Do you hear what I'm saying? I'm not saying that. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that's what's in the wind. That's what's sweeping across evangelicalism. That's what's at stake. Even this word ransom here, the translation of the New Testament, is not a great word. And has some of it for us? Because we know ransom's done for, for buying people back. Let's say somebody kidnaps and holds somebody for ransom. But it, in, the, in the Greek, it's much bigger than that. Oh, wait, it gets even better. Because the word lutron, this word in, in Greek, is also then related to blood money. What you pay for, you pay for a life. You pay. It starts getting down to the grit. It starts getting down to life for life, blood for blood. And all of a sudden, Christianity at its core, Christ's mouth. This is why you can't separate Paul. Paul uses this language all the time. Is all the language of blood, guts, slavery, and transaction. And I personally think we need to rediscover this because I want to offend this generation with this. This is where the gospel hits the road, guys. Ancient Christianity is true. Um, I bought a Bitcoin a while ago because somebody set me up to do it. Huh? Yeah, I'm sorry. I actually made money so far. Uh, I bought it when it was fair, though. Uh, talk about funny money, though. It doesn't even... That's how removed we are from transactional sense at times. You know, you can tap your iPhone on, on the counter for Starbucks. We, transactions even... We've even had this idea that the idea of transactions is kind of crass, and we have to kind of make it streamlined. If you notice online, that, that in order to make transactions or you have the one click on Amazon now, where you don't even have to go through the process of affirming your order. I just click it. Just click it. And, it, and, it, and, and it's so much less painful, isn't it? <laughs> We've even taken the idea of transactions to try to get away from it. So, so, and vendors know if they can remove the pain of transaction, what will you do? You'll buy more. Because you've removed, we've even removed ourselves from that. We are such a hermetically sealed culture. We don't have, we don't see blood. We don't even touch blood, right? We even, even if you're gonna give life to a life or such, what do you have? You have like a little um, uh, uh, prophylactic uh, plastic you can put over somebody's. Don't touch blood. Stay away from blood. We never see blood, do we? We never see. We never see uh, anything like this. Blood slaves. People put on an auction block. We've never. This is all so different than us. But I'm going to make a claim that the Bitcoin world and the Amazon world and the one-click world is the unreal world. 
If that's the unreal world that we've created, where we can remove ourselves from the blood and the guts of truth, what are the blood and guts of truth that this is claiming? That there is a holy God who had, to be, who had to be transacted with to pay for your debt of sin, and it had to be done. And that holy God would not be appeased with anything less than blood, anything less than of an eternal value. He would take the price, and you were worth the price, and he would pay it. And it's about the blood. I think it's a, this is a call to return to blood and guts Christianity, blood and fire. It's all about blood and fire, right? It's all about blood and fire. And our culture knows nothing about blood and fire. So what I want to talk to, so today, uh, what, what, what is going on here? What's being described? Uh, in the history, do you know that across centuries, you can plot in the, in the history of the history of Christianity, you can plot, it's fascinating work to do, the history of Christian thought. And as you plot it, you'll see that Trinity gets clarified over time. And then, and then a few centuries more on, the divinity of Christ and the Son, and even though the church always understood it, it becomes enlarged and clarified and, 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 and described in detail. And with, this is one of those ideas that took a while, with all the 11th century, people had believed in it, Origen had taught it, people in ancients had taught it, but it did, it, it, usually what happens is a, a Christian idea comes under attack, and then somebody, and then a bunch of people in the church kind of go, wait a second. What she's saying or what he's saying is not what we believe, is it? And everybody's going, no, it's not. Well, what do we believe? We believe, oh, that's right, we believe this. And then they write it down. That's exactly what happens over and over again. And it happens across all the all of Christian thinking. One of the places it happens here is in Anselm's the one. Is. Wonderful saint, brilliant genius, world-class mind Anselm, tackles the idea of this, trans- this kind of word usage in the New Testament. And he lives in a feudal society in the 11th century. And he knows, and he follows a very simple logic, which you follow with me. And then we'll, and then we'll look about what, what do we do with these ideas. But what he does is he says, look at this. In the ancient feudal society, if you work for a, a lord and you're his vassal, if you're my vassal, Will, if you offend me, if you offend me or offend my honor, there is a debt that has to be paid by you, to me. And so, and in the feudal society, I as, the, I as your lord, you as my vassal, I, you will have to pay whatever that debt is. And that's say, uh, it, it could be a monetary debt, it could be a debt of honor, it could be all sorts of things that you didn't do. You didn't discharge your duty, you, you failed, you didn't show up at court, you didn't do something you didn't do for me that you're supposed to do, and you've got to satisfy that somehow. You've got to work it off and work it out. And Anselm realized that that structure sounded a lot like this transactional idea with God. And what he proposed was, oh, I get it, oh, I get it. God is the Lord, and we are his vassals. We are his, like his, in this, we are servants. Now, if you sin against God, if you were to offend him, if you were to reject him, if you were not to do what he said, if you were to make some crime and some thought or some sin, how big of an offense is it against an eternal God? If God is eternal, he's an eternal Lord. He's not a, he's not a worldly Lord. He's, he's eternal. How big is an offense against him? How big does it have to be? It has to be what? Eternal. Okay, you've got an eternal debt. You can't help but offend God in an eternal fashion. He is eternally offended. 
He is offended from everlasting to everlasting with your lack of passion, with your indifference, with your lies, whatever it may be. Okay, a debt has been incurred. The only thing that can satisfy an eternal debt is what? Something worth an eternal amount. Christ positions himself. He says, I will be a ransom for many by saying, I am the invaluable sacrifice to satisfy an eternally angry God. I am the slave trade. You were slaves to sin, and I will release you. You will be slaves to righteousness. All of this language starts to make sense. Everything begins, and now, people, people, now, you talk about people backpedaling. However, people say, you can't believe you would think that about God. I can't believe, because that's so primitive and ancient and ugly. One of the things that, C.S. Lewis said this. The ancients, when they slaughtered the chicken, where they took the pig or the cattle, whatever they did, in the dark place of the temple, as they ripped it and gutted the animal, they knew more about what it is to worship a holy God than the moderns with their abstract, hermetically sealed lives. We live in a false world. Blood and guts belong to the real world. Blood and fire. What are we supposed to do with this? First, first, I would hope that if you listen to this, this is going to be a work of God that happens for us. Because it underscores the ugliness of sin. It exposes the ugliness of the offense and how real it is. It calls sin, sin. And it says that that ugliness of sin and I think that's why this, I think that's why our culture and our generation and the city will want to get back away from this idea of blood and fire and guts. Why? Because what does it say about you? Your offense is a one about blood and guts. It's evil. What you have done costs a price because it's the ugliness of sin is that desperate. And we resist it. Um, I remember so many years ago, this is when I was a child, uh, I was a seminary student, <coughs> describing that when, before God came into his life, he lived in a sewer. And he just didn't know it. And he lived and swimmed and swam in filth. And then when God came, when the light of the gospel came, it was like somebody pulled the manhole over, and he was standing there, and he looked down, and he went, wait a second. I'm covered in filth. That's part of what the gospel's meant. Until you realize you're covered in filth, the glorious value of love in Christ really isn't all that precious or glorious. You know what this generation says when you tell them Jesus died for them? I think this generation is kind of like, well, why wouldn't I? God loves me, but why wouldn't he? Right? I'm pretty lovable. I'm pretty awesome. You tell me God loves me, I'm okay with that. I love me too. The wonder of the ransom word is what? You were a slave to sin. You had to be bought. 
You, you deserve to be a slave to sin. But all the ugliness of sin is exposed. Everything from, and I'll be, let me tell you, what's the great crime of our city and the great crime of the, church, of the Christians of our city? Where does the manhole have to come off where you can see the filth you're in? I would say it's this. Casual indifference. Your ability to not really care, not be moved, to be a little cynical, be apathetic. You know what you're covered in when you're like that? Do you see the ugliness of sin? Oh, Father. You know what? If you were, God won't show you all your ugliness. You know why? If I think if you saw it, you'd, you'd be destroyed by it. I think, I think you'd kill yourself. Christ, God is kind to us by not letting us see all of it. But we have to pray for enough to see enough that we run to Jesus. Who is earnest in the story? Who's earnest? Who's crazy earnest, obnoxiously earnest? Bartimaeus. Son of David, son of David, son of David. Oh, I love it. I love that. I love that brutal, annoying, I will be, I want, and I'm telling, I would ask you, that's what we need. That's what a true vision of our sin will create. Well, we know our blindness now. Maybe you just come to a point where you realize, look, my lack of passion is the blindness of my soul. Then you need to become like Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus is leading you in his humility at south side of Jericho, in the filth and squalor of his blindness. As a man, everybody was telling you to shut up. He's leading you to be what? To be the person who cries out, right? Someday that person will be. Father, I'm going to, Son of David, Jesus, have mercy on us and show us our sin. What's the second thing that reveals that, we need, that our nation needs, our time needs? A holy God. What kind of a God is this? Look, I, let me tell you something. We make up God all the time. We, we all have false <coughs> gods. We all have a false view of God. We make up a God who is actually fairly pleasantly disposed with our particular peccadillos, right? <laughs> He's like, oh, that's okay. You know, I'm okay with Jordan and his sins. It's all right. Yeah, we're okay with that. We, we, have a, we have an understanding. And if Jordan thinks that, if I think that, if we think that, what we've done is we created a God who's kind of like a, like, a, like a lovely grandfather. Somebody who's fairly tame and fairly accommodating. Someone whose gentleness was, oh, it's, oh, it's okay. He's God and he loves me. Oh. I don't know what's more terrifying. A God who requires the death of his son or accepts it. <laughs> he is holy. Scriptures say he will by no means clear the guilty. He is holy. His standards never cease. He is holy. His eyes cannot even look upon sinful man. Lest we, lest, lest we and he, lest he destroy us. There's a moment in the Old Testament we're supposed to learn from where God says, tell the people of Israel to stay away from me. So if they get close to me, what does he say? Remember what he says? If they get close to me, I will break out against them. Who is this God? This is the God of transaction, of blood and guts, who understands what has to happen and then makes it happen. What's the third thing we're supposed to see? Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. 
He's going, oh, look at this. Jesus then positions his life as an opportunity for you to be saved, for you to be rescued by trust. You know that you're a sinner. You realize this and recognize it. And then the blood and guts transaction is made for you. And as it's made for you, you know it's that real because you're a real sinner. It's not a painted cross because you're not a painted sinner. It's, not, it's a real cross and a real slave trade. It's a real blood and guts. It's real death because you're a real sinner. Your sin was, your sin was real. And that means just as equally, it's a real rescue and a real rediscovery and a real love present for sinners. And then what happens at this moment where the eternal God becomes man and dies upon a cross as a sacrifice? An illustration, well, first of all, the demonstration of love is your hope. Transactions entered upon, paid off. <sighs> um, it becomes like a paradigm shift now of what love is. How are leaders to lead? How are you to love your wife? Sacrificially. How do you to serve your husband, Stacy? Sacrificially. How are you to serve the church? Sacrificially. How are you to serve amongst one another? What should happen with our, our sign-up lists for nursery? It should all be sacrificial. It's the modus operandi. How am I to live my life as a pastor? Lord it over now. That I should be the first one to serve. Anyone who would lead here must be the first person to sign up to serve. Why? Because that means we are pulsing. Boom, boom, boom. With what love? What love is pulsing in us? The love of Jesus. We're just like our master. Now gospel love, had by faith, is pulsing our hearts. And no, even our lives seem like a trivial, a trivial matter for the sake of we are animated by you. What does this practically mean? It means that Deepak actually says, what's important for David is more important than what's important for me. It means that when Melody comes to church, she doesn't come here to say, how am I going to be served? I, you know what? I'm wondering whether I really want to be at this church, and I will be here, or I will come, based upon what kind of services I get. Do you, when I say that, do you realize how deeply out of step the evangelical world is with the pulse and beat of eternal love. Why are we so far from it? Why do we go to church to be served instead of to serve? I'll tell you why. I think we have backpedaled away from the ugliness of transaction, slave trade, and blood because it's repulsive. Not realizing that the reason it's so repulsive is because of how repulsive we are <laughs> as sinners. And how large a love inhabits our hearts. Do you realize when you start getting close to understanding this, you have eyes to see it and ears to hear it, new praise starts to come out of you. <laughs> the sacrificial heart now, do you know why you sacrifice? For the church or for one another or for the people at work? Or, or you know why you sacrifice? Because nobody can stop you. <laughs> you. You're in love with a God who loved you and knew what it, what it cost when he said, I will love McLaren. He said, I know what it costs. I know what it costs. I know what the ransom price is. It's my son. Let's go. That's what the eternal God said. I know what the price is. 
Let's go. And I will say, for us as a church, the vision that God has given us, do you know what the price is? Let's go. But if you're not willing to sacrifice all for Christ, you don't belong here. We have to come to the table to give up our lives for him. For only then will we beat, beat, beat with gospel love, right? Thrive and alive with gospel love. This is what the Spirit needs to do in removing blindness. And we will become, as we have seen our sin and rejoice over the, the joy that God has loved such as us. And we're no longer apathetic, no longer cold, no longer resistant. Now we become a people of living, astounding love that the world has never seen. Um, I'm going to end with this. Somebody asked me, uh, what's the difference between kindness and niceness? What's the difference between kindness and niceness? That's a good question, right? That's a good question. Now, what's the difference? And I was trying to describe that. I think we all get to it. Kind of like, you know, what's the difference between kindness and niceness? And uh, if somebody were to give up their, one of their kidneys for you, you wouldn't say that was a nice thing to do, would you? <laughs> well, that was nice of him. What would you say? That was kind. Gospel kindness. I was a pastor in the South for so many years. And all I think I've seen, I, and I, I thought it would be different out here. I go into churches, and even churches sit here, and I see a lot of gospel niceness. Oh, yeah, it's like we're pleasant to each other. I think gospel niceness is the enemy of gospel kindness. This was gospel kindness. It's like Jesus. Do you know why Jesus died for you, Melody? Because his kindness is eternal. <laughs> I, don't you want to be caught up in that? We're caught up in what God does here. This isn't very nice, this stuff in here. But in it, in the slave exchange of his own life for ours, we see eternal kindness. Christianity is not nice. It's kind. They're totally different things. May we be a totally different thing because of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for our worship. I thank you that you're the kind of God who loves us this way. Father, the blood and guts, the blood, slave trade, your son would die for me, would die for us. as a ransom for many. I can't even get my head around it. I pray for new, I pray for new ability to get our heads around it. And new joy in our salvation. And new sacrificial love for one another. Father, we would ask, we've asked again and again that we would be a church of your choosing, the kind of, of church that you want us to be. And we know now, we can see it here, that's a church that reveals in its authority and its love, and its authority structures, and its people, sacrificial love on fire with your sacrificial love for us. I praise you, O Son of Man, that you gave your life as a ransom for many, including me. In Jesus' name.
Ah, sometimes I think we miss it, don't we? This is a table of blood and guts. This table is the early Romans, by reputation, said that Christians were cannibals. You know why? Because it was written that when they come together for worship, they eat the flesh of a man. Ew. betrayed our Lord Jesus Christ took bread and he broke it saying this is my body which is for you. In the same way he also took a cup of wine saying this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the cup of the covenant. Take and eat. I say to you if you give your life to Christ and you believe in his sacrifice for your, the ugliness of your sin and that the slave trade has been made and the ransom has been paid and this is your table. This is your table. Come and taste and eat and see. Now you all know the drill here but but uh, let, me, let, me, let me put up a barrier. Let me put up a, a barrier. If you, if you think you're a good person, you're not worthy of the table. And do you see why now? If you think you're a good man, McLaren, you despise the blood and guts of Calvary. You say your sin's no big deal. You're not worthy of the table. Only sinners are worthy of the table. Finally, if you're a skeptic and you think everything I said sounds like a bunch of primitive hooey, then I ask you to watch. Watch and wait and ask God to reveal himself to you. I get it. This is a big, this is a tough one to swallow. We're going to come forward and take the table after we do the Nicene Creed. We're going to come forward and take the table, the blood and wine, back to our seats. Uh, and then we will eat it together and sing a song and then we'll be done. So, um, huh? Uh, yeah, sorry. Thank you. So, <clears throat> wine is on either side of the bread. In the back row here, the back two rows are grape juice for those who prefer it. Okay? Let's stand. Tell me, Christian, brother and sister. Well, I do not know. The night is in my heart. I doubt anybody here does. So, um, You'll turn to it in the back of your in the, in the back two pages. Christian, what do you believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of life, very God of very God, begotten, not created. Being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven. <laughs> Spirit in the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was also crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. He shall come again with glory, judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church, 
we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Come. Come. Taste and see the Lord's good.